0: Scripture is from Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 12, uh, beginning with the first verse. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not be, uh, which is uh, your true and proper worship, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be renewed by the transforming of your mind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Well, if you're anywhere close to my age or older, you have lived through the church wars, which were called worship wars. For about the past 25 years, the church has debated what is an appropriate way to uh, worship God In corporate worship. And so there's been a kind of worship known as traditional or liturgical. There's a kind of worship that's known as praise. There's a uh, worship. There's a kind of worship known as contemporary, though uh, its practitioners now are beginning to realize you can be considered contemporary with a lot of different things, including the 1920s or the 1840s. So they've changed their name to modern. And there's a newer movement known as emergent. And so for 25 years, the church has debated one another about uh, the proper way to worship God corporately. But I have to tell you this morning, the Apostle Paul would not have understood the argument, nor would the Apostle Paul have even cared much about the argument. For the Apostle Paul, worship was more than just what we did in a gathering together one day a week. Worship was much more. And this is why he told the the church at, at Rome to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, he said, this is your true and proper worship. Worship for Paul didn't just involve a few hours on an evening or a morning, whether it was Friday or Saturday or Sunday. Worship for Paul involved your entire life. I want to talk with you about worship this morning. And part of the reason I want to talk with you about it is, as Donna mentioned the announcements, we're talking for many weeks about our basic mission here on earth, which is to partner with God in in bringing heaven to earth, or to partner with God, uh, the Father, in making earth more like heaven. And last week we talked about that the way that God intended that it would be done and the way that Jesus practiced it is Jesus helped bring heaven to earth by making disciples. But that of course raises the question, well, what is a disciple? And one way to say it is, well, a disciple is someone who uh, is uh, able to be as Jesus is uh, in the world. But what does that look like and, and how do you get there? And so what I want to do over the next seven weeks is share with you some uh, characteristics of disciples. But not only that, these are not only characteristics these are activities are means by which one becomes a stronger and deeper disciple and the first one on my list to share with you this morning is worship so it might help by just defining what is worship well for the last few centuries worship has been def- defined as worship ascribing worth to God. So for generations, uh, we've taught people in the Protestant church that worship is where you show up because you want to offer God value. You want to say to God, you're God. And, And that's a wonderful thing. But more recently, theologians have looked at that and realized that's really the cart before the horse. God is not God because we come and worship. God's God whether we show up or not. And we may think we set the agenda whether it was with a pipe organ or a band with a guitar and sax but God called the meeting and what people have realized is that we worship because not we're ascribing value to God but because God ascribed value to us God loved us so we love God and in response. And so more recently, people, theologians, have talked about worship as our opportunity to respond to the fact that God loves us, a way to say thank you, a way to say we love you right back, and that becomes part of our worship, so how do you respond to god 's love and in worship in one of the ways is simply by what we 're doing today in a gathering as I mentioned whether it 's on a Friday night or a Saturday night or a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night, when people gather together and offer God praise and thanksgiving. And that's so significant that God actually commanded us to do it. God told the people of Israel not only to gather together to worship uh, weekly, but then God set festivals like Passover or um, Shavuot or Sukkot where people would gather even for a week and worship God together. And so God talked about this and encouraged this sort of worship, the rhythm of Jesus' life. If you look at the Gospels, Jesus rolls into the synagogue and worships and then um, uh, rolls out and and lives his life. And we see him keeping the Sabbath and we see him keeping the festivals. The author of Hebrews, um, he or she, we don't know who the author is, says, don't neglect meeting together. So there's something significant about the worship that we come and, uh, and bring as we worship uh, publicly and corporately together. Uh, and, and God has commanded it, but the, if you know much about God's commands and live with them very long, you realize that oftentimes God commands us to do stuff that we really don't get until after a while then we start to figure out the benefits of doing what God asks us to do. And we start to realize it wasn't for God at all. It was for us. So I thought I'd just share with you three things that I think happen uh, when uh, when we come and we participate in corporate worship, and, and I truly believe in it. I mean, you know, part of this is my job. I mean, I, I think it's important. Uh, you probably... Um, are not aware that in the alamo heights kind of family of churches at riverside asbury new heights here in the sanctuary we have 11 different worship services every weekend and then we have a couple three house worship services as well and a new one getting ready to get off the ground i think worship corporate public worship is important so some of the things i think that happened are these one of the things that happens when i roll in here on sunday morning i realize or i'm reminded again that i'm not god you know, all week I've been playing God. All week I've been trying to do my agenda and make it happen in the world. And then suddenly I walk in here and realize it's not about me. And it never was. And, and that God was doing things before I got here. And God will still be doing things long after I am gone. And there's something about worship that kind of gets, uh, gets me in the, the right understanding and right frame of mind about that. Most of you probably don't remember what was my chil- one of my children's favorite cartoons. It was about two mice, One of them, uh, gene- both of them actually genetically engineered, but one to be real smart and one not so much. And uh, the plan of these two mice was to take over the world. And so if your kids watch the show, you'll remember at the end of the show, one of the, the smart mouse and, and the other mouse are together, and the tall one, not so bright, says to the short, smart one, well, what are we going to do tomorrow? And the answer is this, the same thing that we do every day. We're going to take over the world. And, and I live that kind of way. What are we going to do tomorrow? Well, I'm going to try to take over the world. And when I walk in here, it's like, mm, not so much. Some people have labeled our generation the I generation. Not the me generation, though that's true as well. The I generation with our iPhones and our iPads and our iTouch and our iPods. and And what, um, what those products have taught us is we're in charge of the world. And we make all the decisions and we control everything. And I believe that until I walk in here with you. And then suddenly I get a different way. So I love the perspective that I get on myself when I come and worship. I love the perspective I get on the, the larger world when I come and worship with you. Uh, psalm 73 is a very interesting psalm. And basically uh, the guy is complaining about evil people. And that evil people not only seem to do better than us, they seem to look better than we do. And, in the, and they're thinking, well, how can this be God? And then he says in verse 17, then I walked into the sanctuary and I understood. It kind of all made sense. I saw where things would eventually end up. And there's something just about being in here or in a living room, wherever, with God's people in worship that in a sense helps the world be understood. Because I got to tell you, the world looks different to me on Sunday morning than it does on Saturday night or on Monday morning, and I get a perspective here with you that I don't get there. One of the great uh, leaders of um, uh, Judaism in a major reform movement five years ago, his name was the Baal Shem Tov, and this is what he says. He said that there's wonderful beauty in the world, but we live with a hand in front of our eyes so that we cannot see it for the most part. And I think one of the things that happens when we gather together is the hand gets pulled down. And all of a sudden, I appreciate the world, I appreciate other people, and I appreciate um, uh, situations and opportunities that I wouldn't have seen otherwise if the hand hadn't been pulled down in worship. Another great Jewish leader of the 20th century, Abraham Heschel, put it this way. He said, the world will not ever die because of lack of information. He said, the world will die because of lack of appreciation you know, we'll be so overwhelmed with so much stuff and we'll miss, we'll have everything and miss the significance of anything. And worship helps to give that significance. So, you know, I want to say it's very important what we do here, and I'm glad that we're here. But I also want to tell you, this is not the totality of worship. In fact, this probably isn't even the majority of worship. It may not even be 50%. What Paul saw as worship is what we did when we left here, what we did with our lives. I know that sometimes people will say to me, and sometimes I'll even say to myself, oh, but this is my only day of rest, and I have to get up and and come here. And when people tell that to me, I don't say to them what I think, which is, you've told me that work is your whole life and that your whole life is around work, and that the main goal is that you go out and produce something on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, and if this helps you to produce something by coming here on Sunday, wonderful, and if it doesn't, then don't. That's a peculiarly Western notion that we are what we do and that we are our productivity. They would have assumed that life is about being and is, a, and is about living with God and living with others. And so they would have seen gathering together in worship as helping us be in the world the kind of people we're supposed to be. Whatever our job is. And that's actually where our worship finds its truest home. It's not in these pews or in the chairs in the gym. Our worship's truest home is wherever we find ourselves tomorrow morning. Work. Home. Home volunteer association, that's where you worship. When Pastor Donna comes and closes the service, as she does most every Sunday, by by giving you a blessing or benediction, that's not the end of worship. That's actually the beginning. Time to go out, as Paul said, and offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Another way to think of it is this there's an Australian evangelist, and and the beauty of it is an Australian can see things about Americans that Americans can't see because we live here. And he said the problem with American Christians is that they think that the issue is that they are not where they are supposed to be. Let me give you a translation. In other words, our problem is we think, well, we were supposed to be in Burundi, or we were supposed to be uh, somewhere in Africa or, or Costa Rica. He said that's not the problem. The problem is not that they are not where they are supposed to be. He said the problem with American Christians is that they are not who they are supposed to be, where they are. Where you find yourself tomorrow morning or even this afternoon, that's your missionary outpost. That's where God has assigned you to offer worship, to make a difference, and to make your life an offering there. What you do here is important, and we pray, and we sing, and we take up um, gifts in, in and offering, and that is great. But that is a small part of what Paul is asking and what God is asking. It's our lives, and wherever we find our lives tomorrow or on Tuesday or Thursday afternoon, that's where we worship, and we worship with our lives. And the beauty of that is this. When we do that, we are not only acting like disciples, but more critically, we are becoming disciples. You see, it is a Western notion. There's nothing wrong with Western notions. It's just that Jesus wouldn't have typically thought this way, and, and Paul, for the most part, wouldn't have thought this way. And that is, we tend to think we can think our way into acting. So if we tell ourselves, I am a disciple, I am a disciple, I am a disciple, I am a disciple, then we'll go out and we'll be that disciple. Now, I know that Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, but he doesn't say how to renew the mind there, because he thinks these Jews know how to renew their mind. They renew it not just by thoughts, but by actions. Now, I know he told the Philippians, whatever is good and true and honorable, think on these things. Yes, yeah, I mean, I'm probably not the best person when I'm watching ESPN. know, yeah, I get that. But there's more than thinking that. He would have known, as Jesus (coughs) would have known, that it's what you do. And so as I offer my life as a sacrifice, I'm not only acting like a disciple, but by George, I'm becoming one. As I find myself wherever I am tomorrow in my missionary outpost, and I decide at that point with whoever I am with to offer my life to God... I'm being a disciple, I'm worshiping, and I'm changing while I'm doing it. How do you get your mind renewed? Not just thinking happy thoughts, but making sacrificing, loving actions. There's an old story, and, it, and it's so old, it is, it is in many, many cultures. But let me tell you the oriental version, because I like this one. Uh, there was a princess, fair and beautiful, centuries ago, and she couldn't find... A groom, someone to marry who would then come beside her and be prince and inherit all that she was going to have given to her. the ones that were suitors were well, they were like they were either not attractive or worse, they were not kind and good people. She wanted the combination of handsome and kind and gentle. And I think she knew deep down that there probably was some sort of tie between the inside and the outside. So she put out a call suitors came from all around she rejected most all of them well one person living kind of out in the hinterlands heard about this call now he was neither kind nor handsome he was a thief actually and he made a living as a thief but it was a hard living he thought he knew that if you got to come to the palace and the princess spent time getting to know you you got to hang around for weeks if not months and he thought pardon me in 21st century language that'd be a good gig so he decides, you yeah, know, I'm going to sign up for this. And, you know, let's see what happens. I'll get a few weeks off. I don't have to steal anything. Everything will be brought to me. So he has a plan. He goes to a, a friend that he knows and quietly asks him to make a handsome mask, a mask that will fit his face, that will, make him, that will show him to be handsome, but also of a kind countenance. And the mask maker secretly at night went to work. And after a time, he had fashioned a mask that when put on the thief's face, fit perfectly, gave him handsome but also kind features. And armed, or or shall we say faced with the mask, he shows up at the palace and he gets let in. The princess is interested in knowing him, so his dreams come true. He gets to spend days, weeks. Then he's surprised one day when she calls him in and says to the man, you are so kind. And you are so handsome. I have picked you to be the prince. Well, the thief is stunned. He knows he's not kind. He knows he's not happen, uh, handsome. But you know what? He's been, he's been faking being kind for so many weeks now that actually his first thought is an honest thought. And he said, I can't marry her because she doesn't know who I really am. So finally he says, well, I, I can't marry you. Why not? Asked the princess, he said, because this really isn't who I am. I'm not kind. I am not handsome. I am a thief. At which point he takes off his mask. She steps back then looks at him quizzically and she asks this question, why on earth would you wear a mask that looks exactly like your face? What has happened, of course, is in the wearing of the mask, And in the practicing of the habit of kindness and gentleness over all these weeks, he has taken the shape of what he has done. At the 8.30 service, Ian um, uh, did the children's sermon, as he mentioned before, a very quiet group of uh, children. So Ian, trying to help them along, was pointing out examples of sacrifice in the military. And I guess Ian's just out of stuff, so he turns and talks about the sacrifice of Pastor David. Well, that was embarrassing, because I know I'm not that person. My family knows I'm not that person. My friends know I'm not that person. But you know what? If I worship with you on Sunday, and I go from here and offer my life daily in worship, one day, one day, I just may become that person.